0: Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Also printed for you there in your insert. Uh, Lord willing, we will uh, finish up with Paul's letter to the Ephesians next week. Um, And then after that, um, I do plan to preach through or start going through Matthew's gospel. Um, But in fact, prior to that, um, I'm planning to have a short study, um, short series on uh, the Lord's Supper and what does it mean for Christians. So next week, finish up Ephesians. After that, we'll have a short series on the Lord's Supper. What does it mean as Christians when we take the Lord's Supper? Uh, partly in preparation for us as a church, as we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, Lord willing, for the first time together. And then after that, Lord willing, we'll begin a study through the Gospel of Matthew. So I appreciate your prayers as we uh, plan and make those preparations. Today's text, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the Gidda, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Praise God for his holy word. Oh, well, friends, our knowledge about the universe, about the world that we live in, has grown by leaps and bounds over the past 100 years and more. What we know as human beings to intricate detail about this world about the universe is expansive. We know more than ever about these things. And yet, for all that we do know, all the advancements, all the progress, the scientific discoveries, there are still many questions that escape us. Especially many, you could say, existential questions about our existence. Questions of why we're here as human beings and who created all things. Now, Richard Dawkins, a name many of you are familiar with, he was a professor at the University of Oxford, a well-known and outspoken atheist. He says that since the discovery of DNA, there's no need of any explanation of the universe except the selfishness of the gene. There's no design, he says. There's no purpose, no evil and good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference dna he says neither knows nor cares about any of those things dna just is and we dance to its music it's richard dawkins or take another atheist document authors of the 20th century humanist manifesto they say we find insufficient evidence for belief in the existence of a supernatural they say it's either meaningless or irrelevant to the question of survival and fulfillment of the human race. They say, we can discover no divine purpose or providence for the human species. No deity will save us, we must save ourselves. Have you ever asked yourself, who am I and what am I doing here? Those are questions that have haunted humans throughout the years. And if all the scientific and humanist progress, quote-unquote, if all that is reduced to saying that there's no design, there's no purpose, there's no evil and good, there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, everything is meaningless and irrelevant, then we need a different source for answers to these questions of why we're here. We need to know the truth. And the Bible particularly Psalm 8, are exactly the place to answer the most foundational questions about who we are. Psalm 8 teaches us we can know the greatness of who we are, and we can know the greatness of who God is. In fact, the only way we can know who we are is by knowing who God is. And the more that you grasp this awareness of who God is, his greatness, the more you're aware of that, the more You'll understand yourself and your purpose on this earth. And so with God's help this afternoon, we're going to look at Psalm 8 and understand this main idea very simply. Your ultimate purpose in life is to know God and worship Christ as your king. Your ultimate purpose in life is to know God and worship Christ as your king. I want to show how that's the case from Psalm 8. This afternoon, and we're going to see in three different parts here in this psalm. Also, the outline printed for you in your insert. First, look at who is God. That's the first part I think that the psalmist is trying to answer that question, or at least point us toward an answer here. Who is God? Because we can learn three things right away about who God is at the opening of this psalm in the first couple of verses. Notice David, the author of the psalm, first identifies God. He says, Lord, our Lord. And if you notice in the text there, it's two different Lords, right? It's not the same Lord. The first Lord is in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And the second Lord has got lower caps, right? And many of you know that the reason the Bible does that is capital, all caps, Lord, is to show the the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Uh, This is to show, this is to point us to the God who has revealed himself. The God of Moses, for example, when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, this is Yahweh. This is the covenant God, the God who also with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, establishes a covenant and says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he gives signs to Abraham of that, makes promises. This is the type of God that David is referring to here, the God who has called you as his people, a personal relationship with you, personal promises. To his people. So we see already that God is a personal God. That's partly who he is. Lord, covenant God. But we also see that God is kingly. He has a rule. He has authority. That second word, Lord, uh, has that sort of definition, has that sort of meaning. The second Lord is a, a kingly type of word. Uh, Yahweh, my Lord, David is saying. This is uh, someone with authority. The Lord makes himself known to his people in a sense that he is ruling over them. And so when David says, Lord, our Lord, in verse 1, he's saying God is incredibly personal to us. Almost scarily so, fearfully so. But he is also still an exalted ruler over our lives. He's a personal ruler. But he's also worthy of our worship. So... Notice David says here in verse 1 as well, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you see that many times in the psalm, praising God for his name. That's, that's identifying everything that there is really about God. The name of God encapsulates. It signifies all of his divine attributes. God as a, a, a God who cannot become any more loving than he already is. A God who is all-powerful. A God who doesn't change. His word is Sure. It's a shorthand for describing the essence of God. And so majestic, praising God for all of his attributes. And God is magnificent in all parts of his being. And then David says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Again, noticing that God is ruling. He is far above all things. It's David's poetic way of saying that God is king over everything. And he rules over everything. And therefore, all things in this world really um, must submit themselves to his rule and that God deserves their worship because he's the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning of the end. He's the ruler and creator, sustainer of all things. So we also see that he's not only personal and close to us as as a ruling God, he's worthy of worship. But notice who he welcomes to worship him, or notice who he welcomes or uses, so to speak, to praise him and to strengthen his people. Verse 2 is very interesting. David says, The Lord stills his enemies and the avenger, using what or with what? He says, Babies and infants. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. What is David saying there? David's saying that this covenant-keeping God, this Lord and ruler of the universe, he can even use the most insignificant and weak of all things, babies and infants. He can use even those things to accomplish his will. He can use the most weak, the weakest and most insignificant things even to strengthen his people, to build his church, to build his people. This is the God whom we worship, whom David worshiped. This is a God whom David intimately knew and experienced this type of God in his own life. Remember who David was. David was sort of the weakest of his family. He was looked down upon, he was forgotten when it came to um, identifying a king. If you remember the story of how David is selected as king, Samuel goes and tries to choose or tries to figure out out of all that family of Jesse, which one has God chosen to be the next king? David's the last one, right? He's the runt of the litter, so to speak, and yet God chooses him. God chooses him to defeat Goliath, the giant, and God chooses him to be uh, one of the most powerful rulers and God-honoring rulers in all of Israel's history. This is the God whom we worship, a God who chooses what others see As insignificant and weak to demonstrate his glory above all the heavens, how majestic his name is. He does not depend on any of us to receive his glory and praise. He will win glory and praise and majesty for himself. And that is a comforting word for us. I mean, take a look around this room. How many people are there here? Not that many. We're not a church of hundreds. We're a church of tens. And the temptation, I don't know about you, the temptation sometimes is to think, we're not that great. What are we really doing? How are we going to build this church with so few people? Well, let's remember, let's never forget, as long as we are worshiping this Christ Covenant Church, God can use babies and infants to strengthen his people. He does not depend on us, on our skill, on how smart we are, even the number of people to build his church, including ours. And we can be a small-sized church and accomplish great things through God and his power, because he doesn't depend on us. doesn't depend on how great the preacher is. doesn't even depend on how great our scene is week to week. He's going to build his church. He's going to still the enemy and the avenger. He's going to get the glory, one way or another. That, that should be a great encouragement to us as a church. Sometimes God uses very bold, strong, confident, brash people like a Martin Luther to revive and build his church. Sometimes God uses a little boy with a little lunch to feed thousands of people. He can do either way. So God is going to get the glory using sometimes the most weak and insignificant people or churches. That's the first thing I want us to see about God. Who God is. He's personal. He's a ruler. He is gaining glory for himself, even using the seeming weak uh, and insignificant people of the world. But also, let's look at who we are. David asks that question. Who am I? Verses 3 and 4. Because the more that we understand our role and our identity as God's people, the more we're going to worship God and understand who he is and give glory to him. And David reflects on God, and then he turns to this soul-searching question in verses 3 and 4. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, a son of man that you care for him? David, you remember, was a shepherd before he was a king. Just remember, shepherds are out with their sheep night and day. When nighttime comes... Shepherds are out in the fields. Their eyes are gonna inevitably gaze skyward. David, I'm sure, had many opportunities as a shepherd boy to gaze into God's universe and stars, to turn his eyes to the beauty of the open sky and be amazed. Nowadays, you know, we have powerful telescopes. Um, We can see miles and miles and miles into the universe. We have super cameras in space to beam back these amazing pictures, galaxies, planets. And we know a lot about the universe. We know, for example, that in one second, a beam of light travels 300,000 kilometers, which is about seven times around the Earth. And we know it takes about 499 seconds, that's 8.2 minutes, for one beam of light to travel from the sun to Earth. We know that in one year, that same beam of light travels 9 trillion kilometers, which is what scientists call a light year. Eight billion light years from Earth is halfway, halfway to the edge of the known universe. And within that universe, there are 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars on average. And if that's not enough to boggle your mind, in all galaxies... There could be as many planets as stars, about 10 billion trillion. I can't even wrap my mind around those numbers. And that's kind of the point. Doesn't matter if you're David a shepherd boy thousands of years ago, or you're a modern person today with all the technology and advancements. God is so much bigger than we realize a lot of the time. And with all that, we can say with David, Lord, what is man? What is humanity that you're mindful of him? And all of that is the work of what? It's the work of God's fingers, the psalmist says. God ordained it, God called it into being, He created it, He fashioned it, He knows it intimately. His hands painted it, as it were, He ordered every little fleck of the universe. So we should stop and think about that. Think about how down-to-earth the Bible is for a moment because God is a God who created all of that and yet he knows us intimately. If you want to know your purpose, know who you are, where you came from, then you need to know, according to the Bible, you're not just some blob of DNA, as Richard Dawkins would like to have you believe. Just some just thing that just sprouted out of nothing and will go back to nothing. Your life is no more valuable than a piece of dirt. It's not true. God put the whole cosmos together delicately with precision and love, and he put you together with precision and love as well. And when we think of love, we often think of love in a couple different ways. We think of love maybe in terms of emotion, so think, for example, like Romeo and Juliet. They had a very emotional love. Or Aladdin, you think of Jasmine and Aladdin, the love that they had for each other. It's often one way we think of love is very emotional. Or we think of love in terms of service. You know, a, a mother or a father caring for their child is an act of love. Or a soldier for his country, fighting for his country and loves his country. But there is another form of love that we often forget about. We live in a world that has a hard time paying attention to anything. Now, David Foster Wallace, an American author, he once said that in today's world, if you can pay attention, you have something that no one else really has. Now, we, are, we are bombarded by things that want our attention. And the fact is, we pay attention to what we love. And the converse of that is true as well. You love what you pay attention to. David tells us in the psalm here, God never stops paying attention to you. That's part of who it is when he loves you, who he is as he loves you. What is man that you are mindful of him, that you pay attention to him, that you never forget him? He knows every single hair on your head. He cares for the lilies of the field. How much more does he care for you, worth more than the lilies of the field? God is mindful of you. He cares for you, and that means something. It shocked David, and it should shock us. If we're to know who we are, we need to know that we are people who really are cared for by God. We are loved by God. He made us and created us and is mindful of us. And keep that in mind as we turn to The final part of this psalm that I want us to look at, verses 5 through 8, it's really going to answer this question then. If I'm loved by God, created by God, then what is my purpose? What am I sort of doing here? What does God want me to do? Verses 5 through 8, David unpacks that a little bit more. Well, in one sense, he says we're created to glorify God. That's what it says in verses 4 and 5. David says, "What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. We are not like the animals of this world. Um, we are created above the animals. We're given a unique status. That's what David here, means here when he says, "You're created a little lower than the heavenly beings." His point there is to say, you're, you're that close to God as human beings. Um, we're not just some sort of you know, evolved species that happens to have some sort of um, cognizant awareness, just one step above the animals. No, we're right, there up, right up there with God. You are created in the image of God, given dignity and given honor, unlike anything else in creation. You are a sentient being um, made in the image of God. David's really calling us back to Genesis 1 and 2 here. When he says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates man and says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That's who you are. Someone made in the image of God. Made in the image of God means you represent him. It means that you act like him in certain ways. Remember what we said at the very start. God, as a God, one of his roles, so to speak, is to be a ruler over all creation. And so being made a little lower than the heavenly beings then. Your purpose is to rule this earth under God's rulership, under his authority. You are created to rule as a sub-ruler under him. That was Adam and Eve's tasks in the, task in the garden. Their work right, was to subdue creation, to multiply and bear fruit. And that hasn't really changed. Your purpose is to be rulers, to image God in your ruling, to reflect who he is. That's David's point here. And you're crowned with glory and honor. That means you're given a special task above all creation to do that. God's the king of the cosmos, but he has anointed you as little kings and queens to rule under him. Now, David goes on to say here that you have given him dominion over the works of his hands. So that's also another ruling aspect, right? Dominion carries that idea of ruling, of having authority over creation. You have put all things under his feet. That's another sign. You know, kings have a throne, and then they have something under their feet to show how they are in authority over other people. Well, as someone made in the image of God, you have authority. You have all things under your feet. And then David goes on to say, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. His point there is to say all of creation, right? Very comprehensive picture. You are to have dominion as someone made in the image of God. And so friends, if that's true, if you're a Christian and you realize who created you, the value with which you're created, and the purpose, then there are certain ways in your life where you need to realize you're ruling in a sense like God. Obviously not exactly, but to image him, to reflect him. And you give glory to him when you do that. So, how you joyfully give up some of your cherished time in order to care for a spouse or a loved one or a family member or a friend, that is a reflection of how Jesus himself joyfully gave up the comforts of heaven so that he could care for other people. Or how you patiently teach your child. How to obey how to love others that's a reflection of how god patiently teaches us every single day how we're to love him and love our neighbors or when we you host people in your home feeding them meals hospitality christian hospitality is different than the world's hospitality because we're reflecting a god who has welcomed us to his table caring for those in need god has welcomed us when we were strangers and brought us in and took care of us. Or you think of a, someone who talks, like a doctor, as someone who talks with patients, treats their diseases, is in a sense imaging God, imaging Jesus as the great physician. Or kids, even if you do something so mundane, so simple, as organizing your desk at home and organizing your books and toys or whatever it is, You know, in a sense, that is imaging God as the one who has ordered all things. Uh, You're doing that, a very simple thing, for the glory of God. I mean, yes, it has a very practical purpose, but you do it in a sense because it's reflecting who God is as someone who brought order out of chaos. There are multiple ways that we mirror God by being stewards, caring for his creation, not wasting resources, and on and on to show that we are made in his image and meant to reflect him and who he is. You need to remember that because work, work is a good thing. Work was in the world before sin. And yet we know when sin did enter the world, it threw all of this in disarray, right? The way we were meant to roll, so often, we as human beings have abused that. Instead of caring for creation, for example, we squander precious natural resources. Uh, instead of ruling, caring for those under our authority, often, unfortunately, many people are use that power and authority abusively. We know that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, in this world, all over the earth, we have failed in our role, the same way that Adam and Eve failed, to obey God's word, to trust that he's the one true king, to mirror and reflect him. Instead, in our sin, we have tried to kick God out as ruler, to make ourselves the supreme rulers. And instead of getting him the glory, we want all the glory for ourselves. This is the problem in the world today. rebelling against God and his good rule and instead squandering the authority we've been given on ourselves so that we can have all the glory for ourselves. My friends, God's word is sure that he will not let that rebellion go on forever. That one day Jesus will come again to judge those who have rebelled against his righteous rule. And that when we fail to place ourselves under God's rule and Christ's reign, When Jesus comes again, and when God judges those who persist in trying to reign above God rather than under him, uh, they will be condemned and judged forever. But those who have bowed the knee to Christ, who have confessed that we are sinners, that we fail to live under his righteous rule, that we fail to live up to keeping his name, to honoring him, and we do confess and we trust in Christ and see how he has ruled perfectly, then we are assured of forgiveness in Christ and we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. So even though we fail in this life to live up still to the calling that we have, nevertheless, when God looks at you, believer, he still sees Christ's righteousness in his perfect reign and his perfect rule. That's the good news, and... The Gospels, the New Testament, points to this fact repeatedly that Jesus is the righteous ruler. He is the second Adam who fulfilled that role that Adam originally had. This psalm is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Uh, It's quoted at least four times and applied directly to Jesus. And Jesus sort of takes on himself this role that David is describing here in Psalm 8 as the one who is created to rule and subdue all things. He fully accomplished the work that Adam was unable to to do. Jesus, as a second Adam, did that, ruling, reigning perfectly. And also Jesus is, as the creator of of the universe, he has ascended and reigns at God's right hand right now. He continues to rule and reign. This psalm points to Christ's continual rule that he is the one who continues to reign and continues to establish strength um, to still his enemies and the avenger. Friends, God has given us this psalm not only to understand our role in the universe, not only to understand who God is, uh, how he loves you, how he created you for a purpose, God's not only given this psalm to show us how we failed to do that, but ultimately, he's fulfilled this psalm through his son, Jesus Christ. And so take this psalm into you, into your work week, to remember, even though your job is an important part of who you are, it doesn't define you. What defines you is your identity in Christ, who rules and works perfectly. And you remember that, you constantly look to his reign, expecting him to come again when, will he, when he will put aright all the disorder that has gone on in this world, and one day we will have perfect peace, perfect rule throughout his creation as God meant it to be, and we will rule perfectly under him. Your ultimate purpose in life is to worship Christ your king, to know who God is, and the more that you do that, the more you rest in Christ and his perfect righteousness, the greater glory you'll give to God, the more majesty you give to his name. And so the psalmist can close this psalm the same way that he began it. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Friends, as you meditate on this psalm, continue to do that, wrapping your life beginning and end with praise to God and his majestic name. Let's go to God now in prayer and ask his help to do that. Please pray with me.